Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center, and I am joined by my fellow co-founder, senior counsel, and freedom fighter, David Yerushami. I want to start uh, this uh, video cast podcast with some good news for a change, I think, and it comes from, uh, from Texas and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. I would surmise that uh, this circuit court is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, conservative circuit court in the country. And when I say conservative, I mean that it is generally not a lawless activist court. But I had a very interesting uh, decision recently, and it was uh, reported by Fox News on uh, September 19th. And the, the title of this article is Federal Court Rules Big Tech Has No Freewheeling First Amendment Right to Censor. And here's a couple of excerpts from this uh, from this story reporting on this uh, decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. A federal appeals court upheld a Texas law on Friday that seeks to curb censorship by social media platforms. I want to pause there for a moment because obviously this is coming from Texas. It's a Texas law, and and you know the, the left. It, it's like they they. Uh, they almost want to believe that this this censorship does not exist. Anybody on the right knows that these social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, that they, you know, they they really they can shape elections by the way they um, they censor speech. In fact, they did that in the 2020 election with censoring the the story about Hunter Biden, which polls show that uh, that would have had an impact among other ways. But it's interesting that, you know, Texas would have to pass a law like this. You wouldn't expect, you know, California or New York or Massachusetts to to pass a law like this because they're perfectly happy with censorship. Right. Tyrants are perfectly happy with censorship. It's part of their, uh, you know, their modus operandi. They want to censor speech and they want to take away your guns. Those are the two main things that, that tyrants do. So continue with the story. They said the ruling, a major victory for Republicans who charge companies like Twitter and Facebook are limiting free speech because they are is a step in a major legal battle that could end up at the Supreme Court. And I believe that is likely true. Continue with the story. The lawsuit is challenging HB 20, a Texas bill signed into law by Governor Greg Abbott that regulates social media platforms with more than 50 million monthly users, which includes Google, Facebook, and Twitter, and says that they cannot censor or limit user speech based on viewpoint of expression. And now they're not, you know, Texas, this is an objective law in, in many respects. Like you can't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint, which is the most egregious form of content-based discrimination, right? They're not saying you can you can discriminate against, you know, liberals or that you can't discriminate just against republics. They're just saying you can't discriminate based on viewpoint, right? Conservatives, we like free speech. Let it be robust, wide open, right? As the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, famously said. In his opinion, federal judge Andrew S. Oldham, if I'm pronouncing that right, of the Fifth Circuit, said the platforms argued for, quote, and this is an, a quote from the opinion, a rather odd inversion of the First Amendment, end quote, that, quote, buried somewhere in the person's enumerated right to free speech lies a corporation's unenumerated right to muzzle speech, end quote. He goes on to say, Quote, today we reject the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say. And then it, it goes on at the end of the story to make uh, the note that the Friday's ruling created what is known as a circuit split since the 11th Circuit struck down a similar social media law in Florida, one that was uh, signed by Governor DeSantis, and a circuit split generally increases the likelihood of the Supreme Court taking up a case. 
this is a very um it's a very interesting opinion very interesting uh issue right because i as those who listen to this know that i'm i'm pretty much a uh you know wide open you know first amendment uh you know advocate and and obviously twitter's arguing look we have this social media platform and we're operating as uh as editors so we should have you know a first amendment right to uh to restrict speech so it's a very it's 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 a very interesting issue because i i quite frankly i think social media is is a, a very unique uh a very unique uh platform and you know how the courts are going to treat it is is interesting and as our regular listeners and viewers know we have a pending lawsuit against twitter and biden administration for their conspiracy to censor speech critical of biden's covid uh COVID-19 policies, in particular, the vaccine, you know, the vaccination policies, the efficacy of vaccines and and so forth. And and what's you know different about our case is that we're alleging that Twitter is actually a state actor because they're conspiring with the Biden administration to censor speech. So it's a little bit different than what uh, this uh, Texas law is doing. And you probably read about similar lawsuits in the news or saw them covered on on TV and um, you know, that's usually depending on whether if the uh, if the plaintiff has, you know, some connection to the media or the attorneys have some connection to the media. But I can tell you and I and David and I have looked at those cases. We quite frankly have the best crafted lawsuit to advance the, the nature of this this challenge. And we're doing it as a uh, as a class action. I mean, period. We just we just do. We've looked at the, the legal merits and the arguments and everything of these other cases. Now, we have a left-wing district court judge who dismissed our lawsuit, which was no surprise. We knew he was going to be the first judge to rule on the issue, but not the last. And, uh, you know, he had to twist himself, the law, and the facts into a pretzel to reach his patently erroneous decision. And as I noted, he might be the first to rule on this, but he's not going to be the last one. We appealed to the Ninth Circuit, but we have our eyes on the Supreme Court uh, for this uh, for this particular issue. In light of the Fifth Circuit's decision, uh, we filed in the Ninth Circuit case, David did, he's the lead uh, attorney, what's called a Rule 28J letter, which informs the court of relevant precedent issued after the briefing is completed in the case, which was the situation here. So the lead attorney in our case is my colleague, David Yershami, who did a drill down on this Fifth Circuit case. So I want to welcome him and tell us more about this and and how you think this may or may not impact our Twitter litigation and just you know give the... Uh, Listen, our listeners and our viewers, um, a better understanding of what the Fifth Circuit actually did. David, welcome. Thank you, Rob. Nice introduction. Um, and and this podcast, you know, we we kind of alternate between podcasts that deal with more political legal issues, um, and those that um, really kind of drill down on our cases and some of the really important legal issues of the day. So um, I hope I don't. Um, uh, as it were, confound the non-lawyers in the group. And I hope I interest the lawyers in our audience with this. So let's first start with um, what the issues are in our class action where we sued on behalf of a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Colleen Huber of Arizona, who had tweeted um, in a um, affirmative way, an article in an Israeli newspaper that pointed out that the bad outcomes from the COVID vaccine in Israel were higher than the government was actually reporting. And she made the point of stating on the tweet that the 
vaccines at that time were still quite experimental. One might argue that they really still are, but that was her point back in the day when they were simply being um, issued through the emergency use authorization. Articles came out very clearly in the media um, quoting Biden administration officials saying that, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they're just not doing enough, meaning left to their own devices as commercial enterprises running these massive platforms, they weren't censoring enough. So we, the government, engaging in a wartime effort to promote vaccines and shut down negative speech about vaccines, we're going to engage directly with these entities and we're going to show them not just what needs to be censored, we're going to show them how to censor it and we're going to show them how to censor it quickly. And then just one, then our client's account is permanently terminated, no chance for appeal. And then just one month later, Twitter comes out with a public statement, clearly censored by many lawyers saying, you know, we've entered into a partnership, i.e. a meeting of the minds to promote government speech, authoritative speech on vaccines. Now, that's the direct evidence in our case. And the circumstantial evidence or the reasonable inferences from that evidence is that Twitter, in fact, had an agreement, a meeting of the minds to censor speech that on their own, they were not prepared to censor. So that's our case. And it's a very strong case. Now, Twitter, as a private company, can decide for itself that it wants to have certain criteria for speech and they can censor speech, as it were, at will. The problem is if a private party engages in what's called state action, then they're no longer a private party. They're now acting as an arm of the state and under the First Amendment, the state, not a private party, the state may not censor speech. Now, the theories for state action, as articulated by the Supreme Court and kind of fleshed out by the circuit courts, including the circuit court that we're at, the Ninth Circuit, which covers California and Arizona and Alaska, uh, Washington, et cetera, um, not the Eleventh Circuit, the case that Rob was just referring to, which covers mostly Texas. The Ninth Circuit is fairly liberal, as one can imagine. Well, the state action um, theories articulated are four. One, public function test. If a private actor is essentially acting like the government um, on behalf of the government, doing what the government normally does, then it can be considered a state actor. Um, and, you know, one example of that would be if the government employees, a private contractor, like, you know, in the military or a private police or a jail system, right? We have these jails that are run by private companies, um, which is normally a public function. That could be a state action. The other is a joint action test. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that's the, the, element, the, the criteria that we have um, latched onto in the in our litigation the third is the state compulsion test if the state 
forces a private actor to do something that would be unconstitutional. Um, but there it has to truly be compulsory and not simply regulatory, where the government regulates a general industry, but where the state compels a given private party to do something wrong. And fourth is the governmental nexus test. And that's pretty ambiguous, but essentially means that if there's enough of a nexus, a connection between what the private party is doing and the government party is doing, it's kind of a finger in the wind. But what is the joint action test? Well, the joint action test says if the government and the private party are acting jointly. Now, that's also a kind of finger in the wind. I mean, what does that mean? How, how jointly must they act? Well, the Ninth Circuit said, well, you know, that's true. You know, it can be kind of nebulous. How far must the private actor Twitter go and censoring speech if it's just kind of working with the government and trying to promote the good of the state? So the, the Ninth Circuit said, well, look, if you engage in an actual conspiracy an agreement. You're not just kind of working together informally. You actually agree that you're going to censor speech that you otherwise would not have censored on behalf of the government, therefore in violation of the First Amendment. That conspiracy is enough. That gets you as a makes you a state actor. That's our theory. Now, most of the other litigation, the Trump litigation and some journalists and others, um, and mostly in the context of the COVID and the vaccine issues, but also in terms of the election and, and um, uh, of 2020, most of those lawsuits are arguing a kind of joint action test, not conspiracy, but gee, they're acting enough or they're they're off they're arguing a governmental nexus test that they're they're working together the problem with that those litigation approaches is that because the test is so nebulous finger in the wind you know does it really cross the threshold judges who are almost always ideologically biased toward the left and even when they're not they're essentially afraid of the left and the political correctness of today, that they're going to rule against you. A conspiracy doctrine is very clear. Coming out of the criminal law and the civil law, the law of conspiracy um, is, is precise. If you have a meeting of the minds, an agreement, and that agreement is between at least two parties, and at least one of the parties engages in a criminal act to further the ends of that conspiracy, then you've met the test. And in our case, we clearly have enough evidence to establish a partnership and meeting the minds. We clearly have lots of evidence that the government and Twitter engaged in this conspiracy because Twitter was not doing enough on its own for its own business purposes. So there you have the Huber case. Now comes the 11th Circuit case and even the um, Fifth Circuit case. And I think I mentioned the 11th Circuit for Texas. It's the Fifth right. Circuit. The 11th Circuit was the other case that um, out of Florida 
Um, but let's talk about the Fifth Circuit case in Texas. So Texas passed a law, and I happen to think this is a pretty sharp law that said, look, if you're a mega platform, 50 million users plus, and you're controlling marketplaces of ideas, we're going to say that you can't censor speech. Now, if you just stop there, you would argue, well, one second, Twitter, like Dr. Colleen Huber or Robert Muse or David Ushami, have First Amendment rights. So if Twitter is truly acting as a speaker, i.e. or a publisher, right, like a publisher of a newspaper, and they're deciding what news they're going to print and who's going to be able to write letters to the editor and what's going to be on their newspaper, they have a First Amendment right. Texas cannot pass a law that says they can't censor speech because they're a private actor. If you come into my home, I can censor your speech. I can tell you, if you say something I don't like, get out of my house. Well, that's what Twitter is saying. If you say something I don't like, get out of my platform. In and of itself, Texas state law would be unconstitutional. However, there's two doctrines that really flow from the same common law concept. Um, back in the days when England had kings and queens, and they wanted to protect the right of their servants, their, their people, their sovereign, to be able to travel and do commerce. So two doctrines develop. One is the public accommodation doctrine, and one is the... Um, common carrier. Common carrier doctrine. Thank you. So what do these doctrines say? If you... The common carrier doctrine is that if you open yourself up to the public, you're not like a private club or a private membership. You open yourself up to anybody that wants to travel on your carriage or on your ferry or on your steamship. You can't discriminate because my citizenship depend upon you as a common carrier. And you've opened yourself up, so you must be open you can't discriminate. That has been a recognized exception to the fact that you have a First Amendment right that allows you to censor speech. If you're a common carrier, the states may indeed regulate you and tell you not to violate um, someone else's First Amendment rights. You can't censor. You can't discriminate. The same thing flows out of public accommodation like a common carrier, hotels and inns along the way in the days of kings and queens of England were open to the public. And the sovereign um, did not want his people to be traveling and then be told in an arbitrary discriminatory fashion, you can't stay the night. Because in those days, of course, there weren't ends on every corner. There was an inn, and that was sometimes your only possibility of sleeping indoors, protected from the elements and the robbers on the road. And so that was permitted to regulate public accommodations. And that is also an exception. So the state of Texas could have chosen to say that Twitter is, in our view, like a, a big public accommodation or a common carrier. 
they chose common carrier. And if you read the Fifth Circuit opinion, it's a very erudite, very well done opinion. Um, they go through the history of common carrier law and the common law and point out that this does in fact fit quite well with the development of common carrier. Common carrier no longer just applies to widgets or physical things, but it also applies to, for example, telephone, telephony, the telegraph were considered common carriers. So extending it to these platforms is not a big reach. So Texas passed this law that said you can't censor because you're a common carrier. Now, Twitter, through um, one of many of its um, entities that uh, essentially um, fight the litigation battles for them on behalf of the industry, and this particular um, uh, group is called, let me just pull up the name of the group. It's actually the name on the case. Net Choice LLC versus Paxton. Uh, by the way, it was the same Net Choice that sued over the Florida law, which was different from the Texas law, but it also precluded um, discrimination and it also precluded disclosure. Um, if you're going to create rules that are going to impinge upon your users free speech rights, you have to disclose those. The Texas law has a similar provision. Um, both of those cases were brought by NetChoice, which is essentially just a an arm of uh, paid for and funded, probably, I'm not certain of that fact, but certainly uh, fights the battles for Twitter and Facebook and Google. So they sued in the federal court in Texas and said, it's unconstitutional. Why? Because principally, the argument is Twitter and Facebook, these mega platforms, we have our own free speech rights. And all we're doing is acting like a newspaper. We're editing. We're deciding what to publish. We're speaking. We have a First Amendment right. Now, in our case, they made the same kind of argument Twitter did and said, look, you know, even if we did conspire with the government, with the Biden administration to censor bad speech against um, Dr. Colleen Huber and others, we have a First Amendment right that trumps state action, meaning, hey, we can conspire to be an arm of the government, but because we have our own First Amendment right as a publisher, we're immune from litigation. You can't come after us. Now, the argument is stupid on its face, right? If, in fact, you're acting as a publisher, like the New York Times, that's one thing. But the moment you take that hat off and you put the hat on of Uncle Sam, then you're no longer a publisher. You're acting as the government and you can't engage in state action censorship. But they rely on these kinds of cases. In fact, they cited the net choice case from the 11th Circuit from Florida. That court held there is a free speech right held by these mega platforms. And we hold that it trumps the state laws that try to keep them from censoring. If they want to censor, they can censor. 
the Fifth Circuit decision, and if you look at both the 11th, the Florida case, the circuit, the Florida case, and the Fifth Circuit case out of Texas, the Fifth Circuit saying they do not have a freewheeling right to censor speech. One, because they're not really acting as publishers. Indeed, they disclaim that they're acting as a publisher to get protection under Section 230 because Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act essentially says these companies are immune from litigation. They can't be sued for defamation or libel or any of these other type of torts because they're not really publishing anything. They're opening up their platform to whoever wants to come on and they have minor rules, but effectively everybody can come on and, and publish what they want. That's very much unlike a newspaper that selects every single thing that's going to be on, decides who's going to have an editorial letter to the editor or write an op-ed, and they edit those things pretty strictly to make sure that they meet their standard. So the fact is they're not acting like publishers. They're acting like platforms, social media platforms, which are a different kind of animal. And the 11th Circuit said that and even if they were, they're still a common carrier and they can be regulated as a common carrier. Very well done. I think better reasoned and better written than the 11th Circuit case out of Florida. Um, we now have a circuit split, so it's going to eventually go to the Supreme Court more than likely. Um, but that's where we are in our in our litigation. So we've we put the 11th Circuit case, the 5th Circuit case rather, before our court so they can consider it. It came down the same day we just filed our reply brief and we're waiting for oral argument and uh, we'll see how the 9th Circuit rules. You know, I, I want to um, pick up one thing on the Section 230 of the, of the Communications Decency Act, Section 230 of the CDA. Uh, people have probably heard a lot about it. We've talked about it in the past, and and it does provide. And it's kind of interesting how that how that will, you know, applies in here because it it is it does grant very broad immunity, and you know the things that we've argued before. I, I personally think that the uh, the statute's unconstitutional in this respect. It operates as a as a shield, and it operates as a as a sword. Its operation as a shield, I think, does promote free speech. So, for example, you run a blog. Or you have, you know, a company Facebook page, or, you know, any along those lines where you allow people to make public comments, which is good. You can have, you know, back and forth and that sort of thing. And the blogs, I think, are good for that. And somebody posts something on your blog that you created that's defamatory towards another person. Well, under Section 230, you as the operator of the blog are protected, immune from being sued by that third party. But the person who made the defamatory statement is still could still be liable for making the defamation. And that because that makes sense because who would who in their right mind would run a blog or open up their Facebook page because you it's almost impossible to police those sorts of things constantly or somebody posts up something that might be a copyright violation or whatever. So that does but that does to me promote free speech and the use of the internet for free speech. But when it operates as but when it operates as a sword because remember when when you have a Twitter account, you know if I and you know we canceled ours because of the you know, the nonsense of Twitter, but the, our account is the American Freedom Law Center's Twitter account or American Freedom Law Center's Facebook page, or it's our, so we're posting stuff on our own, on our own page that we created. 
230 allows them to come in and then jump into our space that we created on this platform and say, oh, no, 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 and, and censor your speech on your very own platform. And that's where I have a problem with Section 230, not so much as the defense you know, shield part, but as the operating as a sword part. And it's like, it's you know, this Texas law seems to grapple with that point of it and wants to, you know, prohibit that sword part of it by recognizing them as a as a common carrier david right I'm and China. yeah and yeah and and he, here gets to the difference and why the fifth circuit is so right about the difference between a newspaper and their free speech rights to to be a publisher uh, and that's important we don't want the government you know telling newspapers what they can and can't publish so they have a very very high level first amendment right versus these mega platforms. So for example, in the defamation matter, suppose I get up and I, I defame uh, my partner here, Rob Muse, say something defamatory, meaning negative, that's going to cast him in a bad light, and it's false. And uh, let's even go further, and since he's a public person, he's out in the airwaves, he's got a public, he's a public figure, um, Let's say that I know it's false and I say it. Now, I can be sued for defamation, even though I have a free speech right. That's an exception to free speech. Now, if I say that and the New York Times publishes it, or they simply repeat what I say, or they allow me to put it in an op-ed and make the same defamatory statement, as a republisher of a defamatory statement, they can be sued for defamation. Now, why is that? Why should they be in the same way we talk about the blogs? Why should they be responsible? And the reason being is that they are publishers, meaning they look at their news items very carefully mm -hmm. and they, they check the facts. And if they want to report on a statement that I make as a public figure about another public figure, they may, but they need to be very clear that, you know, they're not making a statement about the, the factual truth and here's the context, or they need to make it very clear that it's a false statement. They can't just publish what I say, republish what I say, and get away with defamation second and third hand. You can't do that. You can sue every republisher of defamation. If I tell John Smith, if I defame Rob to John Smith and John Smith defames, repeats my defamation, just repeats it, says, David Ushami said this. Did you know that this about Rob News? This is what David Ushami says. And he says it to Michael Smith. And Michael Smith says it to Alice Smith. Every one of those people who were repeating it can be sued. But what's the difference by a platform, a blog? Is it precisely what Rob said? If you open it up, we don't expect people for the internet to really be as, as robust as it is. We want people to be able to open up their blogs and what have you and allow people to comment. Now, um, what's happened is that both on the left and the right politically, there's been a lot of pushback on that. So on the left, the pushback has been, well, you can't really say bad things about COVID protocols and vaccines. You can't say bad things about the election being stolen. 
you can't say those things. That's that's fake news. That's we we should be able to clamp down on that. Misinformation is their right tagline. Their term of art, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and the right talks about right, and the right talks about fake news and this. And there's people on the right, not as many, by the way, that also want to censor what they consider bad speech. We've I've been told many times that um, we we should be able to sue. Uh, universities and professors who talk about Israel being uh, a Nazi state, uh, apartheid state, uh, you know, human rights violators, we should be able to sue them and that they can't say those bad things. Well, my argument has always been to them, of course they can say it. Just have professors and others who say the good things. And if the student doesn't want their class, find some other professor or some other university or some other avocation without a university education. You have choices. And as Rob pointed out, and Rob and I are both strong advocates of the First Amendment, is that um, there's two principles at work. One principle, which is only really partially true, but it's a good principle, is that um, the best disinfectant to bad ideas or bad thought or bad speech are good ideas, good speech, and good thoughts. So put them both out in the marketplace of ideas and let people choose for themselves. Now, obviously that's not always true because if you can flood enough bad speech or bad thought into the public domain, oftentimes you can't counter that, especially if the government's promoting that, like COVID vaccines. Right, but but exactly that's exactly the point. That's why they have these these laws like HB twenty and and everything else because it needs to be a marketplace of ideas. And right now it's not because the right. Left yeah, is and I'll come back to those that. ideas. Right. Yeah. Right. But the second principle at work, and this is the most important one, is that the moment you choose some entity, some government, some person to be the arbiter of what is acceptable speech, you're gone. Free speech is done because you might pick your arbiter that favors your speech today, but 10 years from now, it'll be on the other side. So irrespective of the true workings of the marketplace of ideas, and I suspect that it doesn't really work so well in reality, the alternative of choosing an arbiter to decide what is good speech is far worse. And that's what the social media giants have been allowed to do. They've been allowed to be told by the government what they can and can't say or what they should allow their users to say. And then they become the arm of the government or because they literally control this new marketplace of ideas with essentially monopolies, not necessarily government granted monopolies, but market monopolies, um, they can control what we say and and essentially think out loud in the public domain. And that's where the state of Texas, and by the way, you know, the the Fifth Circuit made a very important point. If Twitter or Facebook um, don't like what their users are saying, whether it's negative speech about the COVID vaccines or about the stolen election, there's an alternative to, to censoring speech of people who are going to be critical of vaccines or the election. And that is Twitter can put out their own speech. 
I mean, it's their platform. If they want to flood the platform with Twitter speech, COVID vaccines are wonderful. The election wasn't stolen. Trump is a bad guy. They can do that. I mean, they have their opportunity to literally be in the marketplace of ideas and flood the marketplace if they want. So they do have an alternative. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's it's this is a very, very interesting issue. And, and I, you know, I think the Supreme Court is going to take it up because when you you think about the nature of these social media platforms for good or ill, you know, where we are today, these platforms are the town crier. Right. You can you and, and they're all run by these woke, you know, boards. I don't know what that's I mean, but, you know, the left has control of, you know, when they can control your mind, that's what they're trying to, they have the universities, they have the culture and these social media platforms are so powerful. Just the simple example of them suppressing the Hunter Biden story, right? And the polls that showed that had that story been able to, you know, to, uh, to be passed on through social media, like any other major story that would have affected the outcome of the election. The polls show that. There, I think it was, I forget what the percentage was, but it was a significant percentage of people that, that said that it would have changed their vote. They can literally, Twitter, Google, Facebook, they can shape politics. They can shape the outcome of elections. They shut down Donald Trump's Twitter feed, but yet they allow you know, the Ayatollah Khomeini and you know, others to have their Twitter feed up. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely mind boggling. So there's something very unique about them, right? Just like how it was, you know, with, uh, you know, AT&T or any of these other, you know, they, they almost have this sort of monopoly on speech in a way that's, it's a very interesting, um, you know, conundrum in, 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 in the sense of, you know, its impact and the role of the First Amendment in these particular social media platforms. Because, you know, one of the responses is, well, create your own social media platform. And that's what's been happening. Right. Rumble was created in response to the YouTube censorship, which is why we transferred all our videos from YouTube to Rumble. You have Truth Social, you have Gab, you have some of these other platforms. But these these earlier platforms are, are so far greater in size and scope and impact. It's really it's a very interesting. And, and that's why I think using the common carrier analogy or the public accommodation type analogies, it's, it's a it's a very interesting um uh, issue uh, from from a First Amendment perspective. So I'm really I'm really interested to see how the the court's going to come out with this, on this because I, I don't see how they're they're not going to be able to take it up with the split between the fifth and the in uh, the eleventh circuit. So very this is one of those uh, one of those stay tuned uh, stay tuned moments. Um, yep. I, I don't know if uh, it's well we've been going on for forty some odd minutes. We get we can probably just touch base on on. Uh, one of two issues. One we could do briefly if you want to mention, talk about the Mar-a-Lago fiasco, or you know, one of the other things we were thinking about talking about is these uh, these cases, um, which we have challenging the COVID nineteen policies that you know we're getting dismissed now on on mootness grounds, which is so frustrating. I don't know if you have a if you have a preference for one or the other. We could go with the with the uh, with the latter. Yeah, I would like. go with the mootness, and then yeah. we can we can give another week yeah. for the whole Mar-a-Lago, you know. Uh, document trump document issue to percolate a little bit more and get into it next week yeah it's 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 percolating there's no doubt about it um so and you know we just recently um three cases we have on our on our docket challenging these covid uh these various covid restrictions whether it be stay at home the limitation on family gatherings the inability in michigan for example to they were shutting down gun stores but you you know the pet supply and the lotto 
and and alcohol and marijuana shops are still open. The abortion centers remained uh, remained open. You have these mask mandates. Uh, Pennsylvania has this uh, had this has still has this Orwellian contact tracing program. So we've had challenge. We brought these challenges right out of the box. I mean, we were one of the first ones challenging a lot of these these restrictions by these uh, these governors as soon as they were passed these executive orders, which on their you know they, they draft them so they they only last for like thirty days at a time and they continue to renew them, renew them, or they you know they kept moving the goalposts. And the case here in Michigan, Beamer versus Whitmer, which I was actually one of the plaintiffs as well, challenging the uh, the the, re the restrictions that Governor Whitmer put in place, some of the most egregious, ridiculous restrictions. We file a lawsuit, she changes it. You file another lawsuit, she changes it. And we, you know, and after, you know, continue to battle, 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 we had the, you know, the district court said, oh, well, these these decisions, are these orders are now have been rescinded. So the case is moot, meaning that's, you know, it's no, no longer a live case of controversy, so we can't decide it. Meanwhile, you know, there's no ruling on the merits as to whether the, the governor had the authority in the first place, whether these restrictions on family gatherings, these restrictions on your Second Amendment, these restrictions on your, you know, right of First Amendment to, you know, to associate with each other uh, are unconstitutional. And we can't get a ruling on the merits, because quite frankly, I think the courts are cowards. And they're just like, well, this case is moot. So, you know, sorry, we don't have jurisdiction and punt it. And we appealed to the Sixth Circuit. And just today in that Beamer versus Whitmer against Governor Whitmer, we got a unpublished seven page opinion. Say, oh, no, nope, the case is moot and uh, nothing to see here. So uh, just move on. We have a case uh, we filed on behalf of Resurrection School challenging the Michigan mask mandate um, as it applied to school children. It was on behalf of a Catholic school. Uh, originally lost in the and with a panel in the third uh, circuit, excuse me, in the sixth circuit on its merits. We did a petition for en banc review. The court granted it. Usually they grant it to reverse on the merits. And what did the court do? Now oh, the case is moot. And so now we're we're going out. We have a a petition pending in the Supreme Court on the whole question of uh, of mootness. Uh, which, by the way, SCOTUS blog, which is a very reputable uh, reporter of the actions of the Supreme Court, has that petition as one of its petitions to watch. Uh, category. So that's that's kind of good news. They they have their finger on the pulse of the Supreme Court. And then we have the Pennsylvania case, which we're going to be following on notice of appeal here any day, um, challenging the mask mandate and the contact tracing program. And same thing. Uh, oh, well, these things are over now. The COVID, COVID's over, so the case is moot, and we're not going to rule on the merits. Again, just cowards. The courts are cowards. You know, essentially, we filed a motion for a preliminary injunction. While the mask mandate was still in effect, uh, up to the, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, um, you know, they they take forever to rule on these things, too. We filed a an emergency motion for an injunction pending appeal because the mandate was still in effect. And, you know, they just dismissed it without a without an opinion denied case will be taken up by the panel. And so when I'm arguing this case in the Third Circuit, one of the judges said, well, why didn't you file an emergency motion for an injunction pending appeal? And I said, well, judge, I did. And you guys denied it. And then they end up dismissing the case on mootness grounds, not getting to the merits. You know, we can't have a repeat of this, you know, using these um, executive orders to, to, in, to infringe fundamental rights. What's the next emergency, right? Is it, uh, you know, gun violence? Is it climate change? Is it, you know, one of these, and these leftist governors, they're still retaining the power to, uh, to exercise these orders and we're not getting courts to rule on the uh, on the merits for the, for the the vast majority of these cases. So hopefully these cases work their up the Supreme Court, and they uh, you know they address this mootness. There's two 
there's two exceptions to to mootness, um, and that is one's called voluntary uh, voluntary cessation of illegal conduct. Meaning, look, you just can't the, the government can't just voluntarily cease the conduct, say nothing to see here, and then just you know be prepared to reinstate it later. And the other is if it's too short a duration. Is it capable of repetition but evading review? And and plenty that's the case here. These are you know they by their when they issue these orders they issue them for thirty days at a time. You, you're never going to get a court to rule on the merits within thirty days. As hard as we tried finding emer filing emergency motions and everything else, and then they just rescind it. Well, these these orders and rules are capable of being repeated. So the court should take it up and make a ruling for the future. So we don't run into this nonsense again. So these are the battles that we continue to. It's Quite frankly, it's very, very frustrating because the number of hours that you put in to file these lawsuits and to marshal the evidence and to get it before the court quickly, and then for them to sit on it for weeks and weeks, if not months, if not a year, and then say, oh, well, it's been rescinded. Now the case is moot, dismissed. We're not going to get to the merits. Very, very frustrating. Um, hopefully- And let me add let me add an element, Rob, because you, yeah. you, you forgot one case that we have, yeah. and that is the case- um, in the Second Circuit out of New York, where we sued on behalf of our client back in, you know, mid 2020 during the George Floyd riots. And we pointed out that the governor of the state of New York at the time, Cuomo, and the mayor of the city of New York at the time, de Blasio, had both issued executive orders saying you can't go out and protest. You know, first it was you can't go out and Two people can't protest. Then it was 10 people can't protest. Then it was 25. Then it was 50. Then it was back to 25. Then it was 50. Then it was 100. So we sued. And why? Because on the one hand, they had all sorts of exceptions. You could get together in groups of 20, 25 and walk your dog, you know, as long as you had your mask and you social distance, but you couldn't protest. You could, you know, get out on their open streets programs and do the same thing, but you couldn't protest. Then of course, the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protest. And not only could you do that, the governor and the mayor both encouraged people to protest, just don't do it violently. And the mayor and the, and the, and the, the senior police officers actually went out and protested without mask and not social distancing with all these Black Lives Matter folks. So we sued on basis of First Amendment. And of course, we lost at the trial court um, after you know lengthy periods of time to decide. And on the basis, well, you know, this is all kind of reasonable given these terrible, this terrible pandemic. You can do just about anything you want. Now, ultimately, that became very bad law. Supreme Court held, you can't throw out the First Amendment just because there's a pandemic. You have to apply the same standards of review, strict scrutiny. And they weren't. So then we appealed. And during the appeal process, what did the government say? The state and the city of New York said, well, since she's suing us, Your Honor, and we did make this terrible exception with Black Lives Matter. How about this? Why don't we just tell the court, we're not going to enforce it against Miss Geller, our client. Everybody else we're gonna enforce it against. She no longer has a case because we're saying we're not gonna enforce. But it, one second, if you're not going to enforce it against her and you're not gonna enforce it against the Black Lives Matter, how is it constitutional? How does it pass strict scrutiny? How could it be 
absolutely necessary to prevent this pandemic, which is essentially the standard. You know, you, you've got to have this compelling um, state need to protect the people. People are going to die without this rule. And this has to be narrowly tailored and has to be absolutely necessary to, to accomplish its end. But if you're going to create all these exceptions, it's clearly either not a compelling state interest or it's not necessary. Court just took a, you know, said, she, that doesn't matter. We went back down, the lower court ruled against us again, and now we're back in the Second Circuit. And of course, the briefs have been filed some time ago. This thing is just taking forever. And they're hoping against all hope that by the time they actually have an oral argument and give us a chance to argue, and then they come out with their opinion, they can publicly declare pandemic's over. It's moot. Go talk to Rob Muse. It's moot. There's nothing to argue here. And when the next pandemic comes or the next variant and they, they pass the same kind of draconian rules and, and, and oppressive protocols, then come back to court. And we'll moot you then as well. <laughs> exactly. Now we have all this good precedent. To, yeah, it's very frustrating, but uh, we're not giving up, you know, and and we're going to keep fighting these and, and you know, until the, the logical end, which is get the Supreme Court to look at these things and say, look, these these fall within the, the exceptions. Right. They did that for abortion right? because a woman's only pregnant for nine months. Right. And so by the time she's, you know, she's been denied the right to have an abortion, the child's born. And guess what? There's no longer a need for an abortion. So the case is moot. Well, they, you know, obviously they bend over backwards in those kind of cases and they apply the capable of repetition, but evading review, even though it's, you know, she's uh, the pregnancy's over and there's no chance she could ever have to get an abortion again. And therefore the, the law doesn't apply to her anymore. Um, you know, as a woman, she's capable of having a child again. So we'll make an exception to the mootness and we will allow the case to proceed. You know, it, it's they, they do it in other contexts. And these are, are precisely the types of cases. Again, most of these orders are issued with an end date that have to has to then be renewed after 30 days. And it's like, oh, we've been sued. We're not going to renew this one. <laughs> Let's craft something different and moot that challenge out. The goalposts keep moving. But, and let me just add one one. Yeah political comment here since we've talked so deeply about these cases it is it's not precisely but it the mootness doctrine or the doctrine about common carrier or any of many other legal doctrines because legal doctrines can never be as precisely worded and defined as measuring 12 inches on your ruler what happens is that in ideologically driven cases or politically driven cases, that's when the judges, let's not use the word courts because the court is not making a decision. The judge makes the decision and we call it the court's decision. But an individual judge uses the ambiguities of words and legal doctrines to rule the way they want it to come out. They have a conclusion based upon their ideological or political preference, and they use that ambiguity. So when someone tells you, and the Supreme Court justices say, the job of a judge or the Supreme Court justice is to call balls and strikes. 
Well, that's true in a way, but it's no different than having an umpire behind the plate. And we don't have the, back in the day when you don't have the camera that can show the exact strike zone and where the ball hits. And every time it's anywhere near the margins, the umpire who likes team A or team B simply calls balls and strikes according to the team he likes. The obvious difference is in a ball game and a real umpire, the fans will go nuts, right? And that umpire is not going to remain an umpire very long. The difference is many of the court decisions are essentially buried. And of course, if they go in favor of the left, all the mainstream media and Facebook and Twitter and Google are for it. And if they go against it, then all of a sudden it's an outlier. It's a Trump appointed judge. You know, it's a wacko. And they silence that part of the thing. And court decisions are in the main hidden from the public view, right? These things sometimes can get complex and, and, and not easy to understand. And the public doesn't grasp how deeply embedded the ideological and political biases of judges dictate the outcome of those cases that have ideological or political issues involved. Well put. All right. So let's, uh, that's all the time we have today. Let's wrap it up on, on that one. That's, that's a, that's a point there or a theme that'll, that we'll see time and time uh, again in our cases. And, and we'll, we'll highlight that in the cases when it does happen and it happens, happens uh, more times than it doesn't. Um, so we look forward to our next discussion. Thank you all for joining us. As you know, our video casts are posted on our rumble channel and our podcasts are posted on Spotify, Stitcher, and perhaps on other platforms where you Listen to your podcast, assuming that uh, the censors <laughs> allow them to be played. If you like the content, please follow us and please spread the word. Also, please know that we are a 501c3 organization and provide all of our legal services pro bono for the good. Consequently, we have to rely on support from generous donors to do the, the legal work that we do that we discuss on these podcasts. Um, please prayerfully consider giving a tax-deductible donation to the American Freedom Law Center. You can do so securely on our website. AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. As you probably know, the left is uh, is attacking lawyers. I mean, they have lawyers in their sites, um, and 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 their attack on the the you know this anti-American agenda of the left. Um, there aren't many of us really remaining who are standing up to them in court. So please uh, prayerfully consider supporting our efforts and the work that we do. Uh, we provide all legal services to our clients again pro bono at, at no charge. So we have to rely on on generous uh, donors. And let me just add one thing, Rob, yes. that on the left, George Soros, uh, Zuckerberg or whatever his name is at Facebook and Twitter people and the Google people, we now know based upon public filings that they support their side of the legal action, the people that we're doing battle against to the tune of tens of millions of dollars a year. The left wing um, ACLU and uh, Election Frontier and Netscape and all these other entities are being incredibly funded. We don't have those mega funders on our side. We have funders, but not mega funders. And we depend upon the small gifts. And I can tell you 
that we are a very lean operation and we the dollars you spend donating to, to our efforts goes to these legal battles. We don't have a lot of overhead at all. In fact, um, we don't maintain separate offices. We don't uh, um, have the company, the American Freedom Law Center, pay for our utilities. We pay that all out of pocket ourselves. Right. Yeah. So if it's in, uh, if it's on your heart to be able to support us, we we would uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, again, thank you for listening. And may God bless you. And may He continue to bless America. Amen. <laughs>